0: Good morning. How are we doing, nine o'clock? There it is. Hey, it's good to be with you. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're excited you're here. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we jump into a time of teaching, first of all, Caleb's awesome, isn't he? That's, I love that guy. And I just want to echo what he has to say. Like, if you're looking for a place to serve, kids ministry really is where it's at. One of the best gifts we as adults can give is to be able to share Jesus with the next generation, the younger generation. So I love how we put it, whether you're excited about kids, whether you're nervous about kids, just let the Lord lead, fill out that card, and at least just get some information. Uh, We're going to jump into our time of teaching right now. If you open up that program you got when you came in, there is a beautiful message note sheet there. If you pull that out, That's a great tool to help you follow along or to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember during this time. I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Father, what an amazing gift it is to get together with our family, to get together with brothers and sisters and get to sing and declare that you are our Father. Jesus, there's many different stories in this room. For some of us, the way we grew up with our earthly family, the word father is positive and good. For some of us, our experiences growing up, the word father might be negative or absent. We thank you that whoever you are, whoever, whatever, whoever we are, you redefine what it means that you are our father. Then when we look at scripture, we see a father who loved his people despite the rebellion who went after them, who sacrificed his throne, who sacrificed his very life for the children that he loved. Father, as we open up your precious word, your living and active word this morning, may you continue to define what it means that you are our Father and our God. May we continue to see what it means to be your children and your heirs. As we go into this time of teaching, may I, as the communicator, become much less, and may you, as our Lord Jesus, become much, much more. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we all said, Amen. Amen. Well, once again, if you're here for the first time, let me do a brief recap on the series we've been in. This morning, we're going to continue the series we've been doing for the last several weeks called Scent Piercing the Darkness. Now, this series is actually the fourth mini-series or sub-series in a longer study in one of the longest and most important books of the entire Bible, the book of Acts in the New Testament. Now, this series has been focusing on a key leader of the early movement of Jesus, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul and a small team of followers are taking the message of Jesus out into the Roman Empire. Specifically in this series, we've been looking as they've been going to the cities and areas surrounding the Aegean Sea will today be Turkey and Greece. Now, this morning we are doing a part. 2 to last week's message. This morning, we are going back to Athens. Paul is in the city of Athens waiting for his team, Timothy and Silas, to join him from Berea. Now, if you weren't here for whatever reason last week, I want to encourage you, go to rockypeak.org. There it links to our YouTube page. Watch Michael's message from last week because it adds a lot of context to what we're going to be discussing today. But as Paul is in Athens, we deal with the topic of identity idolatry. Now last week, Michael said that he was going to do a 40,000 foot high view, a general view of idolatry. Today, as we dig back into that same passage, we're going to go a little deeper as we get into two core truths Paul teaches about idolatry. So if you're following along on your note sheet, there you have a section titled, Before the Areopagus... You see, you have a map there. We're in the upper left side. We're in the city of Athens. And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Now, as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, let me do a brief recap of some of what we hit last week. So Paul is in the city of Athens. Now at this point in history, Athens had lost some of its luster, some of its influence, but it was still considered one of the foremost learning intellectual cities in the world. For many in this time in history, Athens was still unparalleled when it came to philosophy, when it came to religion, literature, art, oratory, and again, the concept of learning. And what we see is that Paul is distressed by the idolatry that he sees. Now, Michael mentioned this last week that the word distressed in the Greek is actually very, very strong. Another way you can translate that Greek word is the word enraged. Paul is enraged by the idolatry that he sees. Now try to emotionally put yourself in Paul's shoes and understand the situation he's observing. If you go to Greece now, or if you were to go to the Getty and see their uh, collection of Greek antiquities, when you see these ruins, these structures, when you see these statues, we often see them as beautiful works of art, which they are. But at this point in Athens history, when you see these structures such as the Parthenon, when you see these statues lining the street, they weren't simply works of arts, they were idols to pagan gods. And the reason why Paul is enraged is he's seeing honor and glory that belongs to the one true God going in the wrong directions. Now, I want to make one very, very important note that's important for us to understand Paul's emotion. Paul's emo- Paul is enraged at the idolatry that he sees, but his heart is full of compassion for the people. See, sometimes we take that rage of sin and we decide to destroy with it. Sometimes we take that rage and we have an attitude towards other people. You're going to burn and you deserve it. That's not what we see with Paul. He's enraged at the sin, but what we see is he has a love for the people because his God has a love for those people. And so Paul approaches the situation with a wisdom, a restraint, and a respect for God's people. And we're gonna see that as we go on. So, Paul is in the public marketplace. He's preaching Jesus and Jesus resurrected. The people invite him before their Senate, if you will, the Areopagus, this intellectual, philosophical council that kind of governed Athens at this time, because they wanted to hear what he has to say. And that's where we're gonna be starting today, Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. If you have your Bible and a pen, if you have an app capable of highlighting, would you underline or highlight the word ignorance? That is a very key word, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But let's talk about what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing is, again, he's showing his respect by building common ground. What Paul is doing is he's saying he's acknowledging you are searching for God. You are searching for purpose. You are searching for a higher power. And Paul is acknowledging that search, and he specifically talks about this altar to an unknown God. If you remember your history, we had many Greek and Roman gods that were built altars and structures to. Well, one of the things, if you believed in the Greek and Roman gods, you feared retribution if the gods were not properly worshipped. And frankly, the people weren't quite sure how many gods there were. So, history confirms we've archaeologically found altars to an unknown God. That way, if a new God strolls into town and he goes, Where's my altar? We go, It's right there. It's been there the whole time. Gotcha. (laughs) But here's Paul's point behind this by building an altar to an unknown God, these Greeks are acknowledging we may not fully know what it is we're seeking. We may not fully know what God is all about. And Paul is acknowledging that searching, going, you yourselves are saying we may not have all the answers. And what Paul in turn is saying is that the one true God, the God that revealed himself to Israel, the God that reveals himself to us through Jesus, is the God that now reveals himself to you. And so what Paul is going to do is, without quoting specific scriptures, he's going to give a very Christian message. He's going to take them through the story of the Bible from creation to Jesus and introduce them to who the one true God is. So as we continue reading in verse 24, "...the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands." And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So if you open up the the, the beginning of the Bible, the opening chapters of Genesis, we are introduced to God the Father as ultimates. We are introduced to a beautiful creator who spoke the universe into being, who spoke life into the universe, who spoke life into us. We are introduced to a God who sustains life, but doesn't need to be sustained. What Paul is saying here, and this is the most important part of his sermon and the most important part of our message this morning, is that God is to be defined by his own terms, See, the Greek and Roman gods were pretty much glorified humans. They shared our desires. They shared our vices. They shared our shortcomings. They needed us to sustain them. And Paul is going, no, 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 no. The one true God does not need us, but he desires us. And as he begins to establish who this God is, therefore that changes the image of who we are in response to that. So he continues, verse 26, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their land. So now Paul, again, is talking about this ultimate God, this creator, who through our earthly father, Adam, created all races and all nations. And he talks about their appointed land. He talks about God's sovereignty. Again, Paul is painting a picture that God is ultimate, that he is sovereign over the whole of human history. But what's amazing is he's also painting a family picture, a brotherhood picture in all races, in all creeds, in all backgrounds. And this is likely rubbing many of them the wrong way. Because in Greek thought, they viewed themselves as racially superior. Even the ones that believed we kind of had a a shared soul, Michael talked about as being the force last week, they still went, well, we all shared that, but ours is still better. In fact, in Greek language, the way they referred to non-Greeks was as barbarians. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the religious establishment that Paul fought against in Jerusalem? And so again, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Every race, every gender, every background, we have all been created to be unified under this one true king. And he continues, God did that so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him, reach out and for him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." So again, Paul is painting a radically different picture from the Greek and Roman gods. The Greek and Roman gods were separate. They were elite. That's where this concept of Olympus comes from. They were the best of the best and they lived away from the common folk. Sure, every so often they interacted and meddled in human affairs, but that's not where they wanted to be. Paul is saying that this ultimate God, the one that trumps all others, the creator of the universe, wants to know you. He is not far from you. He has left his fingerprints in all of creation so that we would seek him and find him. And then Paul does something very interesting. If you remember last week, Michael highlighted that he quotes two of their philosophers. Luke refers to them as poets. Michael said that the poets were often the theologians of the time. Do you remember that? And again, those quotations in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of our own poets have said we are his offspring. Now it's widely believed that these philosophers were writing about Zeus, who was considered the ultimate power in Greek and Roman belief. And what, are, what is Paul doing by quoting them? One, again, Paul in his love for these people has taken time to try to understand where they are coming from. Two, he is affirming their search for God. They are looking for purpose, hope, passion, to belong to something. And Paul is going, your search is great. It's just leading you to the wrong directions. What you are looking for finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And then he continues. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Again, Paul is hitting that core message. God is not defined by us. God is defined by his terms. God is not bound by the limits of our imagination or the limits of our emotions or what we can build or what we can dream up. God is not bound by any of that. But he also makes an interesting comment through this. Again, if you've ever been able to see some Greek antiquities, there was a lot of work that went into these structures. There's a lot of work that went into these works of art and these statues. See, that doesn't happen half-heartedly to spend years, decades working on some of these works of art. These idols takes passion and conviction, doesn't it? And so Paul is acknowledging you in your search for God have a passion and a conviction. But he's bringing a very real truth that passion does not always equal truth. You can be passionate about a lie. You can be passionate about a falsehood. Let me illustrate this. So just a few days ago, like two or three days ago, I'm driving in the car uh, with my daughter. She's almost two and a half years old. And as I often do when I'm driving, I have my phone shuffling through music. So uh, the song One Day More from the Les Mis soundtrack comes on. So I start singing. I'm getting my Jean Valjean on. And as the song is going, my daughter goes, Daddy, what song is this? I go, oh, it's called One Day More. And without missing a beat, she goes, No, no, it's not. I'm kind of confused at this point. So I go, no, baby, it is. It's called One Day More. No, you're wrong. It's not. I'm like, okay. So I go back to singing badly to my song. A couple seconds pass later, and she goes, again, Daddy, what song is this? Well, baby, I I told you it's called One Day More. No. No, it's not. And so now as we're driving down LA Avenue, we are arguing over whether the song is called One Day Not, one day, one day More or Not. Now, here's what's interesting about that situation. She was passionate, right? She had conviction. There was no doubt in her voice, but she was utterly and absolutely wrong, And I share that to illustrate (laughs) that that's what happens with us with our idols. We become passionate that this is what's going to lead me to salvation. That if I have the corner office and the stuff, if I have the romantic relationship, if I have the perfect family, if I have the image and the praise from other people, if I have this, if I have this, we could go on and on, but whatever this is aside from Jesus, we are passionate going, yes, that is what's going to change my life. That is what's going to lead me to salvation. That is what's gonna give me hope, purpose, and a future, and we are wrong. And again, Paul is saying, hey, God is to be understood on his Terms. Passion and conviction is an amazing gift, but it becomes a danger when it's focused to the wrong object of worship. And Paul continues. Verse 30 In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world and justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So again, this is a very Christian message here. So let's dig into that a little bit. So Paul is talking to a non-Jewish audience. Sometimes it comes across that Paul might be harsher when he's talking to a Jewish audience. And the reasons for that is they grew up with the scriptures. In a sense, they didn't have an excuse because the evidence was right there. Here he is talking to an audience that did not grow up with the Holy Scriptures. And so what he's saying is, your pursuit of God is aimed at idols. And so that's ignorance. That's the past. You're not going to be damned by that. But now you are hearing the truth. And so the question becomes, what do you do when you're faced with the truth of who Jesus actually is? You know what I love about this is it very much echoes the gospel of Matthew. It echoes in Matthew 16 when Jesus is asking his followers, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist or Elijah. Others think you're another prophet. And then Jesus turns it around and asks them and therefore asks us the most important question we could ever answer in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Paul brings up this point of judgment. See, we are a rebellious race, and a key word in that is the word justice. We are all going to be held accountable by our answer to that question, who do you say Jesus is? And he confirms the Christian gospel that by this man that God resurrected, Again, the Greeks and the Romans, they may have believed in the afterlife, but they didn't believe in bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in any type of judgment or accountability. This is very unique to the Christian gospel. Paul is saying that this king that was resurrected will now judge based on what we did with him. And so, if I was a member of this council, there's a lot that Paul says that would make me kind of uncomfortable. But it seems like this point on resurrection was the last straw for many of them. So as we continue, we get to see the reaction. When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others, Damaris or Damaris. So what's interesting is that when it comes to answering that question, who do you say Jesus is? What we see in the council is there's only two responses to that question. There's accepting and there's rejecting. And we see in a split council those responses, right? We see that some went, you have no idea what you're talking about. We see that others are going, I want to hear more and gave their lives and believed in the one true God. You know what's interesting though is we can look at those people that sneered and we could view them as biblical bad guys. And I've said this before from up here the problem with biblical bad guys is the more I look at them, the more I begin to relate to them. Because why were they so upset? Because the truth of Jesus challenged their idols. When the truth of Jesus challenges your idols, does that feel good? No. It's uncomfortable. It's stressful. In some cases, we go, but this is all I've ever known. And when we're faced with the truth of Jesus and it's challenging our idols, we have to choose one of two responses to retreat and continue to live with our false gods or to choose the one true God and to live Beautifully. And I like that Luke ends it by showing how the Holy Spirit worked. I'm excited for what Athens would experience through the work of those believers that the Lord raised up. So that's our passage today. Now, I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to dig into a couple of those core truths that Paul talked about. Again, last week, we looked very big picture at at idolatry. But this week, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into what Paul was actually teaching and see how that removes the idols out of our lives. So if you're following along your note sheet, you've got a section titled, Tearing Down Our Idols. And your first fill-in is this. It's what we've been talking about so far this morning. God is defined by His terms. God is defined by his terms. Michael mentioned this last week that a simple definition of an idol is whatever you you place your highest value on. Person, place, thing, whatever. If it's not the Lord, it is an idol. And so what Paul is basically doing before this council is he's asking, what is your highest value? value. Now, last week, we talked about how, again, like I mentioned, different people, different things, different emotions can be idolatry, career, money, approval, substances, addictions, whatever it is we place our highest value on can be an idol. Now, this week, what we're looking at when Paul says that God is to be defined on his terms, why that is so key, especially for those of us that have been in church for a while, is that if we have a false view of God, that becomes a idol. If we have a misinterpreted view of Jesus, then we are worshiping a false God. And so we need to ask ourselves, when it comes to the view of Jesus in our life, who is determining what Jesus can and cannot do? Is it us or is it God's own word? See, and if you wonder, well, where does this disconnect happen? Where does God become distorted? And we might have a lot of different answers, but the first answer, the most important one, is an internal answer, and it's the word pride. If I look into my own life, what I see is that the foundation of so many of my sinful acts is pride, is this belief that I know everything. Let me ask you a deep soul-searching question. Do you remember how old you were when you decided that you knew everything there was to know about everything? (laughs) And if you're sitting there going, well, that never happened in my life, you are a liar. <laughs> because think about it. There's a point when kids are very inquisitive, right? And then there's a point when we stop asking questions because we've determined to know everything. Even, there are topics we know well, and there are topics we have no business no no business talking about, but yet we still think, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Let me illustrate this. Anybody following the Olympics? Anybody watching the Olympics in Rio? Um, so the Olympics are absolutely fascinating, right? Every four years, the greatest athletes in the world coming to find out who is literally the best at that individual sport. I think it was uh, Bill Murray who tweeted out last week that the Olympics should have a normal human being in every event, just for reference. (laughs) Now, one thing, one of the reasons why I think the Olympics kind of grip us, especially in the United States, is that when the Olympics come around, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, we're exposed to sports that we don't have a lot of interaction with in our everyday life. What I mean by that is football, basketball, baseball, hockey, even soccer, those are things we have access to every year. But then the Olympics come around, and something such as gymnastics comes out, and for many of us, you only follow it during the Olympics, and that makes it very captivating. So let's talk specifically about the women's gymnastic team. I do not understand how they defy the laws of science, as they do. I really don't, I'm just in awe. But tell me if you know someone like this. The Olympics rolls around, and again, for many of us, we don't know a lot about gymnastics, just what we're seeing. Do you know somebody who watches a little bit of Olympic coverage and now considers themselves a gymnastic expert? <laughs> Yesterday, they had not forgotten completely that the sport existed. Today, they're watching it going, you know what she should have done there? She should have bent her knees more. Should have gone for the slippity slam. That would have really gotten the judges going. And that's absolutely absurd, right? But we could go on about the areas in our life that we do that in, but the most deadly is when it comes to God. See, the danger of pride is that pride wants to convince me of a lie that when it comes to life, I am the highest power. When it comes to life, I dictate who God is, what God can and cannot do, that God lives in my shadow, and that's the way it should be. In fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis, When the enemy is tempting Adam and Eve, what does he say? Did God really say that? Or does God just not want you to know what he knows? So you see, this is a struggle we've had from the beginning to declare ourselves the higher power. And so what happens is when we start defining God apart from his word, much like what happened in Greek and Roman culture, we start creating a Jesus who looks exactly like us. We start creating a Jesus that has our background and our experiences and our opinions and our anger and our deficiency and our, well, that sin is okay. We start taking this beautiful creator, God, and we shrink him and put him in a box that we can control. And Paul's message is people understand that we do not define who God is. He does. And it is essential to grow as Christ followers to understand his definition of who he is. I like how this is put in your note sheet. It's a little bit of a longer quote. As we take the gospel out today, We will encounter a wide variety of erroneous understandings of God. Even those in contact with the church may not fully apprehend the gospel because of a false idea of God. A person attracted to Christianity through a felt need that God satisfied through prayer may relate to God as one relates to a doctor. They will go to him with their needs but not think of yielding to his lordship over their lives. The person introduced to the love of God without an understanding of his holiness may take sin lightly and be unafraid to keep on sinning and going back to God to receive forgiveness. The above list of misconceptions misconceptions about God shows us, again, that we have much homework to do to ensure that in sharing the gospel, we build our message on the right foundation. So Paul, before this council, is asking them, and he's asking us as believers today, to think about the question, where does your image of Jesus come from? When it comes to your view of God, what foundation are you building this on? God's or yours? Now, what's awesome about Paul when he talks about this is you hear his passion, don't you? You hear this conviction. See, this was very personal to Paul because before he was Paul, when he was Saul, what was he doing? He was chasing after a false god. Paul thought he knew Paul was convinced that Jesus was not God, that his image of God was. Paul was educated in the scriptures, yet because of his false God, he didn't allow the scriptures to teach him truth. Paul was so convinced that his false God was the right way that he committed atrocities in the name of that God. And then on the road to Damascus, when the one true Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? All of a sudden, Paul realized, I know nothing. And I need you, Jesus, to teach me. So, where does your image of Jesus come from? Are we willing, and this is a hard step, to be a people that admit that pride may distort the way we view the real Jesus? See, the way I like to refer to myself is I'm a recovering narcissist. As long as I'm on this side of heaven, sin is always going to want to tug my pride to go, no, you are the ultimate, you know what you're doing. And I need to constantly stop and ask, Am I chasing after the biblical Jesus or a God of my own making? And so a follow-up question is, does your Jesus look like the Jesus described in Scripture? Does your Jesus look like the Jesus that is described in Scripture? And you might be asking, well, how do I know that? And the proof is in your life. See, we were created by God's to be by excuse me by God to be a reflection of God. When we follow after Jesus, we reflect Him. When we follow after a false God or a false Jesus, we will reflect that God. And so, take a moment and examine your life. Let's talk about the Jesus that is not in the Bible. Does your life reflect a God that is okay with habitual sin? Does your life reflect a God that is okay, that you're addicted to pornography or of substance, that you're sleeping around, that you're stealing and dishonest, that you're selfish, that the words you say are destructive, that emotionally you're unhealthy? Does your God support that? Now, we have the company line when we come to church. Hey, I really want to work on this. I want to go in. But there's a lot of us that we just love it too much. And when we love it and become comfortable with our habitual sins, that's a reflection of the God we follow, because we're saying, my God is okay with it. Is your Jesus one that is okay with you destroying relationships with other people? Is your Jesus one that when it comes to spreading the good word, your attitude is, burn, you're going to burn? Burn. Is your Jesus one that when it comes to disagreements, whether it's in your family or friends or coworkers, well, my God would want me to win, and that's how by destroying other people. Is your God okay with you, quote, winning conflict by sinning against other people because of their sin? Is your God okay with you just blasting emotional unhealth over Facebook and Instagram? How about this one? Do you follow a Jesus who's okay with you not caring about growing spiritually? Do you follow a Jesus who's okay with the fact that you don't have a high value on Scripture or worship or praying or growing more and more? You sit there and go, Yeah, I go to church. I'm good enough. See, those are examples of the Jesus we don't see in Scripture. But as we're examining our lives, let me give you an example of the Jesus we do see in Scripture. And what's beautiful about this is we're imperfect beings. But Jesus gives us a model because he empowers us to live up to this. And so the Jesus we see in Scripture is the Jesus who valued truth, who valued God's truth, who valued who he was and his character, who valued learning more and more about who God was and to spend time with him. What we see in Scripture is we see a Jesus who had a compassion for the people that didn't know him, who Jesus stood for truth and he didn't shake it, but he ate with tax collectors. He reached out to the woman at the well. He reached out to the highest parts of society and the lowest part of society. That when he built his own team, he didn't pick the perfects, but he picked the normal and the hated. And he showed that his message was to spend time with all regardless of gender, race, creed, whatever. What we see in scriptures, we see a Jesus whose heart was to obey. See, Jesus that knew that growth comes through obedience. What did Caleb, when we sit here, listen and follow is something we often say at Rocky Peak. We see a Jesus that the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, in anguish, in blood, in tears, he's going, I don't want to do this. But your will matters more. We see a Jesus who was passionate about growing to know God more through prayer, through studying his word. If there was anybody in this world who could have skipped a devotional time, probably would be Jesus, right? (laughs) And instead, what example does he give us? That he valued that time with God the Father. That it was a priority for him to go and seek. See, that is the biblical Jesus. And so is it possible, as we're reflecting on who we're reflecting, that God's Word is asking you to rethink how you view Jesus? And that segues into our second fill-in. Understanding God changes how we see ourselves. Understanding God changes how we see ourselves. There's a distinct correlation. It's always an overflow. What we worship is going to dictate how we see our own lives. So when we worship and reflect a small fake counterfeit God, then that will overflow. And if we have a small view of God, we will therefore have a small view of ourselves. See, one thing I love about the Bible is that you can't say that the Bible is not blunt. The Bible understands that I am a simple person, and I just need blunt truth. And so last week, Michael used the scripture, and I loved it, so I brought it back into your note sheets out of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Would you underline that last phrase? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. See, but here's the beautiful part of truth. When we begin to see God on his terms, when we see God for who he truly is, this creator, this savior, this sustainer of life, then the overflow is we begin to see who we actually are through God's eyes, and what we see is that we are God's beloved. That we are his sons and daughters; that we are the object of his cre- object of his love, and that because of that, we have eternal value and worth. Because whatever false god we follow, when it comes to the message of us, they all teach the same thing. Do you want to matter in life? Then you better earn it we all live in that rat race, don't we? Hey, if you want to matter in this life, then you better get, the corporate, better get the corporate promotion. Then you better have the money and have the stuff. Hey, do you want to matter in life? Then you better have a romantic relationship that defines you and completes you, as Jerry Maguire said. Do you want to matter in life? Do you have kids? Then you need to be the perfect parent. Your kids never should melt down in targets. You should always have prim, we've been there, right? You should always have very respectful kids that always that look like they fell out of a 1950s movie. And everybody should be in awe of you and your parenting skills. Hey, do you want to matter in life? Then what's your talent? Are you an athlete? Are you a musician? Are you smart? What's your talent? Because if you don't have a talent, you're not worth anything. Hey, do you want to matter in life? Then you better limit your sins to three a week. Because if you're doing anything more, you don't matter. Hey, do you want to matter in life? Oh, you've made mistakes in your past? Sorry, you blew your shot. That's the message of a false god. And what's the message of the one true God? That in the middle of our sin, rebellion, disgusting nature, God so loved you and me that he sacrificed his very son just so we would be restored to him. See, if you hang around church long enough, you hear this phrase that we are God's sons and daughters. And sometimes that phrase starts to lose its luster and we must be a people that can never allow that to happen because there is a deep gravity and magnitude to the fact that the creator of the universe views you as his beloved, viewed you as imperfect. The atrocities you've committed, despite what anybody else has told you, despite what your own family may have told you, the you that is just broken and falling apart was worth it in God's eyes to die. So you can be restored to your rightful place as a son and daughter. I love how it's put there on your note sheet out of Galatians. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a biblical term. It's like a kid saying, Daddy, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. See, God doesn't just love you in this moment. God loves you for all of eternity. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins, he restores you now in this world, but he restores you for all of eternity in which he will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. See, when we see God who he truly is, for many of us, we struggle with how we see ourselves but when we see god for as he truly is the overflow of that as we begin to see ourselves through god's lenses and we see that in god's eyes we matter your story matters and not only do we see that we matter but i've been using the word overflow a lot right So the truth of God overflows into us. The truth of who we are then overflows into every aspect of our lives. And now all of those aspects of our lives that used to be bondage, we can now approach them with a new freedom. Let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. So I've been referring to romantic relationships. We live in a culture that tells you if you don't have someone, then you don't matter if you're not married or dating or sleeping around or just completely focused on your sexuality, then you don't matter because the other person is what completes you. When we have a proper view of God, which therefore gives us a proper view of us, we realize that nobody on earth completes me. Jesus completes me. That I don't need to live in that pressure and I don't need to put that pressure on someone else. That I have my fulfillment in Jesus and he says, you matter and I have completed you. You can look at parents, parenting. Parents, we're no longer defined by that title. We're not just parents. When we have a proper view of God which overflows into a proper view of us, we realize that parenting is hard but we are no longer alone in it because we have the ultimate perfect father guiding our steps. We have a God who is rooting for our children harder than we ever could because they are his creation. And when you are at the end of your rope, when you feel like you can't do another day of parenting, it is that God that will sustain you and give you freedom. If you look at work and a career, we live in a culture that teaches you want to matter, have the money, have the stuff, work the 80, 90 hours a week, destroy your relationships if that's what it takes because they'll understand, right? You're providing for them. And when we have a proper view of God which overflows into a proper view of ourselves, what we see then is one, we can reclaim the honoring, honoring concept of work. We were created to work it was part of the garden before the fall. And, but now when we go to our work, we realize that work is not what fulfills me. Work is not what completes me. Jesus is what does that. And so this is an opportunity to reach out. This is an opportunity to gain resources. and is an opportunity to view money differently and go, God, joyfully, what do you want to do with your resources to impact your kingdom? Spiritual growth. When we have a proper view of God, which overflows into a proper view of us, we begin to realize that growing spiritually, these spiritual disciplines, as we call them, are not a chore. But what they are is the God of the universe has made himself known. The God of the universe that created all of this is the sustainer of life. He wants to be present in my mundane, everyday life. He wants to be there. And these spiritual acts are ways to access him. He is accessible to me. So when I go to church, when I open up my word, when I pray, when I worship, whether I'm here, whether I'm at home, whether I'm at Target, whether I'm at driving, whether things are going well or things are falling apart, I have the presence of my Father with me always. And why would I not want to spend more time with that? And finally, idols. When we see ourselves through God's eyes, we see our beauty and we begin to see idols for what they are. And now we have a God-given passion. No, we want these removed in our life because nothing is going to get in the way of how beautiful it is to be in the presence of God. I quote Tim Keller a lot. He's one of my favorite authors. He's there on your note sheets. Have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are the words, you are my beloved child in whom I delight, an endless source of joy and strength. That blessing, the blessing through the Spirit that is ours through Christ, it is the only remedy against idolatry. Only that blessing makes idols unnecessary. Isn't that beautiful? So let's get practical as we wrap up our time. On the back, you've got a section titled, Discovering God's Terms. So, how do we then discover God's terms? How does He define Himself? Well, that's what we've been talking about again all morning. You're filling this consistent time in his word. God has given us his word for us to know his character, for us to know his power, for us to know his story. We've also been given his word to know how we fit in his story and how God views us. Now, we talk about the Word, the Word holds this truth for us, but we have to acknowledge a very serious problem in many of our lives, and that's that many believers, many people that profess to be Christ followers do not have a high view of the Bible, We do not have a high view of Scripture. And the way we know that is that for many of us, we are totally down with all the other spiritual disciplines. Going to church, yeah, woo, they have donuts. Worshiping, I love music, that's great. I love my life group, getting accountability. I love praying to the Lord. But when it comes to spending time in our Bibles, we treat it like it's a buzzkill. We sit there and go, oh, my Bible. And we kind of equate spending time in our Bible with reading an old school phone book. And hear me very, very clearly on this. Having a low view of Scripture is idolatry. Because what does Scripture say about Jesus? He is the Word. Amen. They, what did Michael say a couple of weeks ago? They heard the Word and they were saved. When Paul spoke, again, from that message, they searched the word to verify that what he was saying was true. In the beginning was the word, and he is the word. And so when we have a low view of Scripture, we don't simply have a low view of, quote, a book. We have a low view of Jesus. I love the picture Michael used last week When he said, for those of you that have kids, when you have a hungry kid, that's a good thing, even though they're eating you out of house and home. When you have a kid that doesn't want to eat, there's something wrong. And that's true of our spiritual lives as well. As God's children, when we're hungry for his word, things are going well. When we stop being hungry for his word, something's wrong. And often what it is, is we're chasing chasing a false god. See, God in his word, he places a very high value on the Bible itself. This is in your note sheet. This was a late edition, but would you write in your note sheet 2 Timothy 3.16? In it, Paul is describing God's word, and he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that phrase, all scripture is God breathe. When God breathes into something, he gives it life. When God breathes into his word, when he breathed his word into existence, what we now have is we don't simply have a book, but we have the very words of God which can change our lives which bring us into the presence of god what i like is that it says also for you to be thoroughly equipped what do we need to be equipped truth Amen. we need the truth of who god is we need the truth of who we are without that we are not equipped for the mission god has called us to and where do we find that equipping his word It is in his word that we are in the presence of our creator. And so let's get a little more practical. So how do we start changing our view and have a higher view of scripture? Because it is vitally important that we as a Christian community take back a view of scripture. Because it seems to just be accepted among Christians everywhere. Yeah, I don't get to the word. And that's always going to keep us at a glass ceiling. And so how do we begin to get practical? Well, the first step is in prayer. We need to ask God himself to change our heart when it comes to how we view the word. I can't do this alone. And you know what? I'm not even going to try. I need God to change my heart to pray, Get me see the word as you do. Let me value the word as you do. The second way to get in the Word is you want to explore your wiring. What I mean by that is we are all beautifully different. And so what that means is the way one person gets in the Word can be different than the way another person gets in the Word, and that's good. That is fine. We are wired different. So a couple questions for you to consider. Are you better at reading or do you prefer listening? There's some people that reading the Word is really how the best way for them to digest it. There's some people that listening to it, a lot of your free apps talk to you, the version app does that. You want to go old school on iTunes, you can buy Johnny Cash reading the old King James Version. (laughs) And it's a hard translation, but it's Johnny Cash, so it's pretty awesome. But... If you prefer to listen over reading, does that mean you don't get as much of an impact? No. Now, if you're a reader, it's asking even further questions. Do you do well with maybe a scripture or two at a time? Or do you do well with maybe a chapter or two at a time? Do you want to go through topics? Or do you want to maybe go through a book like the Gospel of Mark? Do you do better in the morning, which more power to you, morning people? Or are you like God's people and you're an evening person? (laughs) Are you a one-time-during-the-day person? Are you spread out during the day? Do you see, we could go on and on and on, but the reality is you want to find your wiring. And how do you do that? Well, that leads me to just this third simple step. If you want to have a high value of the word, just get to work. Just get to work. Let's be a people that have dropped the excuses Let's be a people that say, okay, it's my resolution or I'll get to it. No more. Just get to work and let God speak his truth into our lives. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close out our service, it's a song we we're going to sing a song we sung at Rocky Peak before. It's actually one of my favorites because when I first heard this uh, several years ago, I was on the East Coast and I heard it and it just kicked my butt. And I love it because it's a song that is just a declaration of truth. It's a declaration that God is truth, and that is where I want to be. So as we go into this time of worship, as the ushers receive our gifts and offering, let this be a time where we allow God to do work in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are our truth. Thank you that you speak truth. Let us see you as you define yourself through your word, through your own terms. As we sing out this last song, Lord, let this be a time where we joyfully say, God, you are truth, and we want to grow deeper in that. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Let's stand together. As you go from this place today, may this be a day, may this be a week in which you are just drowning in the truth of the Lord, where you see him for who he actually is, and therefore, you get to see yourself as his beloved because of that. May this be a week in which his truth empowers you, gives you hope, passion, And courage to continue to grow deeper in Him. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right along that wall, some amazing men and women from our prayer ministry. They're wearing badges to identify themselves. They would love to pray with you before you leave. Hey, next week, Michael's going to be continuing our series. Paul is going to go into Corinth. His team is reunited and he's going to be preaching Jesus. And as is often the case, that gets him into some legal trouble. It gets spicy, so you're going to want to be here. By the way, if you're going to go pick up some kids in kids' ministry, hey, love on those kids' ministry volunteers because they do an incredible job. So we'll see you next week.